Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm all right. Look what I'm driving. Look at the curves and my overhand serve. It's more than surviving. Get in the car. Get in the car. Don't give me that, you know who you are. The answer is here, it isn't that far. Oh, we should play Moxie Fruvis more often. All right, so um, you might have heard me say this before the news, but you can really kind of boil down the idea of this show to the following statement. Most of us treat our car as kind of an extra room of our house. It just happens to move around. It's on wheels. But, you know, do a lot of things there. What we're going to tell you today is that that room is bugged. It's like really seriously bugged. Uh, and uh, we got a lot of ways we're going to explore that. But we're going to begin uh, with two journalists who've done some pretty groundbreaking uh, coverage. Um, actually, I don't even know if that's the right way to describe Jen. But uh, Jen Kaltreiter is a, a program director of Mozilla's Privacy Not Included project. Uh, Kashmir Hill is a technology reporter for The New York Times specializing in privacy. Um, so, um, Jen, I want to begin with you, um, and we should say that uh, this uh, the headline was, it's official, cars are the worst product category we have ever reviewed for privacy. So maybe we should begin there. You look at privacy policies and the, the playing out of those privacy policies, that's your job. And you and your colleagues were nonetheless shocked <laughs> when you took a deep dive into the privacy policies of the modern automobile. Say why that would have been. Oh, oh well, hello, and thanks for having me. Yes, um, I do read privacy policies for a living. Yes, you should feel sorry for me, but I do it for <laughs> you guys. And yeah, when we started reviewing privacy for cars last year, uh, we just didn't really know what to expect. You know, we we kind of went in, somebody, one of our re readers had recommended looking at cars to us in 2022. And so we said, okay, in 2023, we'll do it. And we should and say, we was, started, the, was this the person in Sweden who actually, because they have no daylight, actually did some, <laughs> did some investigation because they were bored or something and found something? Yes. Yeah, shout out to Robert in Sweden for bringing to light the fact that cars and privacy were a huge problem. And, you know, we, uh, like I said, me and my team of uh, t other two, uh, Misha and Zoe, shout out to them, uh, started reading the privacy policies on cars. And, and we didn't even know where to start because turns out that, you know, you go to, you know, your fitness trackers page and there's a privacy policy at the bottom and you read it if you want. Um, it's pretty easy with cars. There, there's literally for Toyota, I think we found 12 um, before we stopped trying to like discover all the privacy policies that there were. And we were like, holy cow, we, we, it took us just almost a month to kind of wrap our head around what is this even like? Um, and then we started reading the privacy policies and we had to narrow it down because we couldn't do everything. And we read the privacy policy for the car companies, the connected services the car companies offer and the apps. Um, and 
it was bonkers. You know, uh, privacy policies that talking about sh collecting information on your sexual activity or sex life or your genetic information um, and just like bragging almost about how they're going to share that and sell that and monetize that in all the ways or share it with law enforcement based on an informal request, which is the lowest bar I think we've ever seen. And, and we were all just sitting around looking at each other kind of over Zoom as one does going, wow, this is so bad. Why isn't anybody talking about it? Like, we can't believe nobody's talking about this. It's so bad. And and, and then it kind of dawned on us, well, maybe that's our job. Um, and so we finished our research, knowing that we just scratched the tip of the iceberg, um, found some crazy stuff and put it out into the world, not sure if people were going to care about it, um, and have been pleasantly surprised ever since that people are surprised and shocked and angry that cars are so bad at privacy. Right. The wonderful news is you totally freaked out an entire universe of people. So, Kashmir, you know, we might sound a tiny bit lighthearted about this, but you really looked at the dark side of this. And it kind of began uh, with the story of somebody that you knew uh, who um, who kind of discovered in exactly the way you don't want to that their car was monitorable. Say a little bit about that story. Yeah. Um, a woman I know reached out to me because she was trying to get out of um, a relationship um, with somebody who is very controlling. And she, because I write about privacy and security, said, you know, what do I need to do to make sure he doesn't know that I'm basically trying to get a divorce? And so I gave her advice about her computer, about her phone. And then uh, she tells me later she's driving to her divorce attorney's uh, office. And all of a sudden she gets a message on her car that says that her husband was tracking the vehicle's location. And it was really striking to me because it just it wasn't a vector I'd kind of thought about for tracking somebody. Um, and it made me start thinking about that. And then I was talking to a digital security trainer who works with domestic violence survivors. And he said, you know, what I'm seeing a lot is that women are getting tracked via their car. And they just had no idea their car even had an app. Do you, um, would you like to talk to some of these women? I said, absolutely. I think this is a really important story that needs to be told because I don't think people realize this. Yeah, it's a really chilling story. And we'll circle back to some of the details about that. But Jen, one distinction that might be interesting to, to probe would be, you know, it's maybe one thing for car companies to reserve the right to sell or share data uh, about things, including, as you pointed out, uh, in the case of several car makers, sexual activity or sex life. These are actually mentioned in the privacy policies. But do we, how much do we know about what they actually do as opposed to what they reserve the right to do, if you, if you see what I'm asking? Yeah. And I think you highlight a very important problem that we as privacy researchers see every day. Once your data is collected by these companies, they own it and it goes into a black box. And it's really hard to know exactly what they're collecting, um, what they do with it once they have it, who they're sharing it with. You know, you can read a privacy policy and they'll give you some vague idea. Um, but the specifics of it um, are, are they're not they're not just not known. And, and that's, and that's intentional. They don't want you to know. All I can say for sure is if you go out and buy, say, a Kia, um, you're required to consent to a privacy policy to use that Kia that says they can collect information about your sex life. Um, it, and for people that are like, is that legal? Yes, it's legal. <laughs> is it okay? No, it's not okay. This should not be how it works. Cause most people don't read a privacy policy on a car 
um, before they buy it. And after you bought a car after the fact, there's just not a lot you can do to to change the that you're they say that they could do that. And just to stay with this for a second, too. I mean, look, I've got Alexa in my house. Uh, I've got all kinds of things that probably know a lot about me. I mean, I got a phone that knows a lot about me. There's something about this car thing that feels like more of a violation. Uh, and we're going to talk later in the show to people who kind of specialize in the psychology of our relationship to cars. But maybe it's also like, I know Alexa might be up to something and I know my phone is full of stuff. Is it just that we just, as you've said earlier in the interview, we just weren't really thinking about cars that way? Yeah, I mean, I would think that it's, I, I, for me personally, it's it's a couple of things. We don't buy cars that often. You know, my, my vehicle is a 2002, you know, and so um, you don't think about how the technology might have jumped ahead. And so you go and you drive a car, you, you, you don't see the camera, you don't see the microphone or see the sensors. Whereas with your computer or your phone, you know that they're there and you kind of know how to disable them. You can leave your phone behind. You can put a piece of tape over your camera. With your car, it, it's just, the, the the ways that you can protect your privacy just a aren't obvious and b for a lot of people that haven't been to buy a car they're just not aware and so i think that's that's one of the problems it's just so hidden for for so and and new for a lot of us and the other one going back to this like a car is an extension of us you know in america cars are they, there's there's just a, a love a, a relationship that we have with cars there you know, where we get in trouble as teenagers and, and have conversations with our kids or call our doctors or, or do a lot of personal stuff. And so the fact that this is no longer private and it kind of it kind of crept up on us, it kind of surprised us all. Um, and, and the car companies wanted it that way. You know, when we reached out to them, they pretty much ignored us. Um, they, they don't want to talk about this because they were getting away with it. And now that they're not getting away with it, well, they're still getting away with it. <laughs> Nothing's really changed yet. But I don't think they're happy that people are aware now. And so that that's a good thing. Right. And if anybody would like to buy Jen's 2002 car, which probably is not capable of collecting as much information as my 2021 Subaru, which tells me sometimes if I thinks I'm not looking at the road. I mean, it is watching my eyes. It has been absolutely clear to me. And, and as you've pointed out in your piece and a little bit today, yeah, location, driving habits, including speed and braking, medical and genetic information, sexual activity, voice and camera data, your weight can be measured by uh, seat sensors, the songs that you listen to. Uh, it's all part of that privacy policy, they reserve the right to it. But Kashmir, this really does get genuinely scary at a very, very visceral and interpersonal level in, in the area that you've been writing about. Um, you wrote about a woman who was trying to get out of uh, um, a, a bad relationship, uh, and she's, it was a marriage, and she started occasionally seeing a strange new message on the display in her Mercedes about a location-based service called Embrace. I guess that's how you're supposed to say it. Um, so pick up the story there. I explain what turned out to be happening. Exactly. And this is a different person than who I was talking about earlier. But this woman is named Christine. She lives in Louisiana. She had been married for 10 years. Um, her husband had changed. He was uh, he'd become violent with her, uh, you know, was abusive. She decided to end the marriage. 
left him, you know, ignored the the hundreds of calls and text messages from him. She was just trying to completely cut off contact, get a divorce. And then she starts seeing this message on the screen in her Mercedes that a location-based service had been turned on. She, the second time she saw it, she took a photo of it. She looked it up online and realized it was part of this app called Mercedes Me that was connected to the car. And it let him see in real time where the car was. And she just, she didn't know that this app existed, you know, that it was possible to find the location of the car. So she called Mercedes and she explained the situation. She said, hey, you know, I'm divorcing my husband. He is abusive. I have a restraining order against him. We're in divorce proceedings. The judge has awarded me sole use of the car. And Mercedes basically said, you know, I'm sorry, we can't help you. He is the owner of the vehicle. And um, she was working with a detective who was investigating her husband for stalking and violation of of the protective order. The detective told me she contacted Mercedes multiple times, and they just couldn't get Mercedes to do anything to cut off her husband's access to the car, access to her movements. And eventually, she ended up going to a private mechanic and paying $400 to have him kind of disconnect the, the hardware in the vehicle that was allowing this tracking. It also turned off her car's navigation system and a kind of emergency service for this button she could press to get help in case of an emergency. But she said, like, I don't care. I just didn't want him to be able to know where I was because at one point he actually turned up outside of a male friend's house when she was over there one night. And she just she was actually very afraid for her safety in her life. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the moments my the hair stood up on the back of my neck is that thing one night when she visited a male, male friend's home, her husband sent the man a message with thumbs up emoji. Uh, it's like I'm I'm watching you. And there is a certain paradox that in order to get rid of the thing that allows your ex-husband to put you in danger, you have to turn off the thing that you could use to call for help uh, if you had an emergency. Um, but there we are. And And Jen, to that point, I think a lot of people are listening right now and going, Wait a minute. I bought a car in the last five years. I don't remember ceding any of my privacy rights at all. How or when did that happen? So help us explain how it is that we somehow or other have surrendered some of these rights. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you don't car when you buy a car, part of the buying process isn't for the car our dealer to be like, here's our privacy policy, you know, and here's this privacy policy and here's this privacy, here's the 18 privacy policies that cover everything, read through them before you sign on the dotted line. That just doesn't happen. And most people don't know that they should do that. Um, and then you read the privacy policies that do exist and um, Subaru stood out to me because it mentioned how you know, consent, you know, when did, when did I consent to this? Well, according to Subaru, the moment you get in a Subaru is when you consented to the, as far as I could tell, the moment you got in the Subaru is when you consented to their privacy policy and all their data collection. And a lot of privacy policies that we read had lines that say, hey, um, it's your responsibility as the driver of this car to let people know of these privacy policies. And as you know, every time you pick up your buddy to go to the movies, you sit outside first and read the privacy policy for 15, 20 minutes before you go to the movie, right? That's what we all do. It's not. And so, you know, it's this um, it's just kind of laughable that, you know, they have these privacy policies with really broad um, data collection and consent and and sharing with 
third parties selling, um, sharing with law enforcement that nobody's seen. Um, but they say, you know, I read a quote from a, the, a, a person, a, an exec from GM that said, oh, we never do anything without people consenting. They've consented to this. And pretty much everybody who's driven a car was being like, I don't remember consenting to that. When did I consent to that? And that's part of the problem is there's just not a good pathway of consent. Um, and and talking about safety, you know, the car companies say all, all these features and data collection is for safety. The Actually, the automotive um, industry group, after our research came out, wrote a memo that said, we're not spying on you. We're keeping you safe. <laughs> and, and I want to say to them, prove it. You decouple the data collection and the monetization that you're doing from the safety features, like opt people into the safety features, opt people out of all the, the data collection for monetization. If car companies really, if it's really about safety, then why won't car companies do that? Um, that's where I kind of want to ask them, but they won't talk to me. Right. And, and Kashmir, in your example, that woman had to make her car actually somewhat less safe in order to get rid of this other thing that was making her unsafe. And and I think one of your observations here, Kashmir, is safety is kind of in the eye of the beholder. You're not that safe if, if some abusive person can follow your car around. Right. And, I, you know, I don't think that the car companies are nefarious or, or evil, you know, here. I think part of this is that these are companies that for a long time just made, you know, something that went from point A to point B, and they weren't technology companies beyond that. But now that cars are internet connected, there are all of these new implications. And with these car apps in particular, they were introduced, you know, to be convenient for drivers. These are apps you can use to find your car when you forget where you parked or to turn it on, you know, remotely um, and heat it up on a, a wintry day. And I just don't think the car companies thought through the the implications, like how this could be used in an ab abusive way to spy on somebody, to track somebody, to harass them. Um, I just don't think that they anticipated it. When they think about safety, they think of, you know, are your seatbelts going to work? Is your airbag going to work? Is this car going to keep you from getting killed in an accident? So I think part of it is that they're, they have to shift their mindset as companies, that they're now, you know, uh, communications providers and, and big data collectors. Yeah. And, and Jen, you know, one thing that feels very unsafe also is that whole thing about formal or informal requests from law enforcement. I think it's Hyundai that actually uses that terminology, but apparently they all essentially have the policy. I don't know. I'm watching Fargo right now and John Hamm plays this incredibly abusive sheriff who's trying to track down his ex-wife, actually, uh, for very violent purposes. And so, you know, in the world of these auto manufacturers, John Hamm can just say to uh, for a, to a car manufacturer or to whoever is holding that data, whoever the data has been been shared with or, or sold to, hey, yeah, and you have any idea where this car is right now? That's a really scary idea. Even I mean, most law enforcement maybe is on is is okay, but someone who wants to abuse this can do it with really very very few encumbrances. Yeah, it's it's. You know, the bar is so low and for something that collects this much data, it should be much higher. I mean, just to give people some clarity around where we would like to see the bar be. Um, you never want a company to give up your personal information without a court order at the very least. You know, you know, Mozilla that where I work, we won't give up your information unless that they come to us with a warrant um, or a subpoena, a court order. And then we say, OK, make this as limited as possible. 
Um, we will notify the person that you're requesting data for on, unless you absolutely say it's a matter of national security and we can't. Um, and then we'll give you the limited amount of information within the scope of your request. That's kind of the, where the bars should be. Um, and then you know, we love to see transparency reports where companies report back, oh, this is what we've given to um, law enforcement over the past year. Um, Car companies don't do any of that from what we could tell. Their bar is really low about sharing with governments and law enforcement. And, you know, most of the time it's probably okay, you know, but you can just think of many instances, not just in the U.S., but worldwide, where that could be really abused. It could be really dangerous um, for people in certain groups. Um, abortion was just, uh, you know, made illegal based on states here in the U.S. And that that's the, that's really scary if you're a woman. Um, and so so that's something that we we worry a lot about. And and just to kind of I just wanted to add on to Kashmir's point about the, you know, when air tags came out. There was a big backlash about how they could be used for stalking and Apple responded and added some features to kind of say, OK, we're going to add some anti-stalking features to, to try and protect people from that. And that was good. That's what you want to see. Um, car companies created these features. The You know, you can you can create geofences so you'll get a notification if your car goes out of a certain area. You know, location tracking, as Kashmir already mentioned, um, you can give digital keys to people and revoke them. Uh, you can limit speeds and things like that all through these apps. So there's a lot of ways that the technology can be abused by abusers. And it would be really great if the car companies would follow Apple's model and think through, oh, we didn't think how this could be used by abusers. We should go back and put in some features for anti-abuse and anti-stalking. That would be wonderful. So, yeah, Kashmir, to a certain degree, I'm probably the worst nightmare of these car manufacturers, at least in this particular zone, would be regulation. And there might be some of this on the way. Tell us uh, a little bit about what you've learned about what Senator Ed Markey uh, is up to. Yeah, so there's several lawmakers and regulators that are interested in this, in the car industry and the information they're collecting. Um, uh, Senator Ed Markey did send automakers uh, letters asking, you know, what information are you collecting? Who are you sharing it with? Who are you selling it to? Uh, California's privacy regulator is is currently investigating automakers, trying to better understand this. And then actually in reaction to the story that the New York Times that we put out about um, how these connected car apps can be used to track and harass the um, FCC today sent letters to the automakers asking, well, what are you doing when victims of abuse come to you and ask for help? Um, do you have any processes or policies in place? Um, so this is definitely an area that regulators are interested in. And I think it's, yeah, I mean, I just think that the public doesn't understand what's happening. You know, we we don't know what information is getting collected by our cars, where it's going. And for these victims of abuse, sometimes they just don't even know that the car app exists um, and that this kind of tracking is possible. Right. And so, I mean, to the point of senators and other politicians, Jen, um, it's 2024. I believe some kind of election is taking place this year. Uh, and um, one of the things that campaigns are very interested in is data. They want it from firms with names like Cambridge Analytics. And I've always assumed that there's at least kind of psychographic data out there that if I'm a Subaru owner and I also, you know, turn up in two or three other data sets, I'm probably this or that kind of voter. But 
this would allow them to get more granular. I mean, if they know what songs and podcasts and stuff that I listen to in my car, um, assembling a profile of me for election influence purposes uh, would become that much easier. Yeah, the privacy policies we read, um, they talk about the inferences that they can draw on us um, based on all this data that they're collecting from our cars, from self-reported, from data they buy from other sources, from data brokers, from the government, from public sources, from social media. They collect all this data and they build a big profile and they make these inferences. And some of the inferences are really creepy, like um, inferences about your intelligence, uh, about your abilities, your psychological trends, your predispositions. Um, and, you know, it's one thing to think about how that that data can be used to sell you stuff, you know, oh, go buy this pizza because, you know, you're in the area and you seem to like pepperoni a lot. That's OK, whatever. That's innocuous. But like you mentioned, it's a it's an election year and how the inferences about our intelligence and our psychological trends can be used to manipulate us um, by very bad actors looking to drum up anger, fear, um, action, uh, violence, uh, that's when it gets really scary when you think of all this data being collected, combined, used um, to create these really creepy inferences. And then the fact that there's just not a lot that you can do once that data is collected. Um, I live in Vermont. It's not a state like California with a strong privacy law. We just bought a new uh, Mazda last year, and I went to have my data deleted after the purchase was done. Um, and they laughed at me. They're like, oh, you live in Vermont. We're not going to delete your data. We don't have to. Um, if I lived in California, they would have to. And so it's just really scary that there's just not a lot people can do when this data is collected. It's collected on you. It's out there. And now people can use it against you. And, and that's not good. Right. We have to take a little break here. Um, I have to just quickly say, for those of you sitting there listening and saying, well, I guess I will buy one of the cars that doesn't do that. There kind of aren't any unless you're going to go to Europe and buy a car uh, that that exists under a different kind of uh, set of privacy laws and ship it back to the United States. So there isn't really a great answer right now. Uh, I want to thank both of these terrific guests here. Uh, my guess is this is the first time, this isn't the last time we're going to talk about this, but uh, Jen Kaltreiter is program director of Mozilla's Privacy Not Included Project and Kashmir Hill is a technology reporter for The New York Times. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. That's our friend of the show, show Jimmy Webb. And uh, we're about to talk to uh, Stefan Gosling, a professor at Linnaeus University in Sweden, author of The Psychology of the Car, Automobile Admiration, Attachment, and Addiction. Um, also has written a very interesting uh, paper on the lifetime cost of driving a car for ecological economics. Um, in, in, you know, First of all, welcome to our show. Uh, and second of all, one reason I picked that song to open the segment is it's Jimmy Webb talking about sort of all the kind of life events not really connected to driving that happen uh, in, in a car. A car is where we sing songs and and go on dates and put on makeup at the stoplight. And we, I mean, we live our lives in cars to a certain degree. And I'm guessing listening to the pre preceding segment, you would understand why people starting with my technical producer, Kat Pastor, feel very violated by this idea that the car is doing things that they hadn't been told about. But I'd love your, your reactions to what we've just uh, just heard. Thank you. Uh, definitely agree. It's, it's deeply disturbing uh, from a car owner's perspective, car user's perspective, driver's perspective. Uh, you have to remember we are growing up with cars. The, the car is everything. We are building co-identities with cars. You know, you are nobody literally if you can't pick up somebody for the problem with a good car uh the car gives you freedoms all of that is very important but then there's also an outside environment that more and more people perceive as dangerous as something that uh creates anxieties and uh, we think that the car is a good means of being protected it's becoming a protective capsule increasingly i think and um Within this capsule, you, you really want to be sure that there's nothing that is a disturbance, that questions that privacy space, and uh, very obviously what's going on now with uh, car manufacturers and, and the services they are including, or rather the freedoms that they uh, build into the car for themselves to, to surveillance. That, that is a big headache for, for everybody who seeks privacy and the protection that the car is. Yeah, I've always assumed that people, uh, as they are in their cars driving, they, they almost seem to treat their car like almost like the carapace of an, of an insect, like the protective shell of a beetle. And, and to me, that explains why if somebody hits your car and just puts a dent in it and you're not injured and the car isn't really significantly inca incapacitated, people will get angry and freaked out all out of proportion. And, and my guess has always been that it's almost as if the person hit you, not your car, because your car is such an extensive extension of your body. Oh, it definitely is. Uh, the car is you, you are the car, right? Um, I, I think there is a quote from, from a 
car movie uh, in that uh, direction. Yeah, definitely. The, the the car is many things. You you need to remember it's not just the transport mode. It's um, it's uh, community. It's um, you know partner finding. It's uh, escape. It's rebellion. Uh, it's so many different things that are related to affective and symbolic values that um, we often, you know, uh, mistake the car for something that is just a technical means of getting around, but it's it's not, it's, it's much more. And when you have developed that kind of co-identity, as I call it, with the car, then um, anything somebody does to the car is something he or she is doing to you, and that makes us angry, I think. Yes, and we've just been told and told and told that maybe a, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, but a car is never just a car. I mean, our movies tell us our, tell us that, uh, as you're saying, you know, and, and in the movie Thelma and Louise, that, that Thunderbird convertible is the symbol of escape, is the symbol of transformation, uh, getting out of the environment they want to get out of and into something different and potentially more dangerous. But yes, in movies like Mad Max, a car is kind of an extension of the hero's heroism. But one of the things that I've noticed here in America is that increasingly, we're going to go to B2 here, Kat, increasingly car commercials are really almost about a state of mind more than they even are about the car's ability to traverse some perilous landscape. Let's hear one of Matthew McConaughey's many Lincoln commercials, B2, Kat. Sometimes you got to go back to actually move forward. And I don't mean going back to reminisce or chase ghosts. I mean going back to see where you came from. Where you've been, how you got here. See where you're going. I mean, Stephen, that isn't about acceleration or fuel economy or safety. I don't even really know what it's about. But the suggestion is that your inner state, your mental and psychological inner state, has something to do with the car you're driving. It certainly does. It's, it's actually a very complicated field. It's, it's linked to clinical psychology. It's uh, linked to, you know, uh, not being able to use other means of transportation, for instance. It's, it's also about um, the personalities that we have. There's aggressive drivers, for instance. Um, there is um, uh, different uh, types of mental illnesses that are related to driving and, and even the car choices that we make. Um, and there's an even deeper level of how advertisement can appeal to personality disorders in order to make people buy a certain type or model of car. So this is is very complicated and uh, probably something that I can't um, explain in, in just one sentences, sentence. But the essence is that um, cars are something that, that are deeply, deeply uh, connected to um, our personalities and identities. Right. And, and and as we've said, the commercials kind of tell you that story, uh, tell you that a car, the car for the person you set out to become, um, you know, is, is actually, I think, for a Chrysler, one of their taglines. And, and if that's the case, then you might make car choices based on the kind of person you want to become, which may explain why over the last few decades, cars have gotten bigger and bigger. Your ability to buy something that, you know, would crush other cars. Uh, if that's the person you want to become, you can get a car that reflects your desire for greater musculature maybe yeah 
Um, I think what, what Viet is really telling us is that we can extend ourselves. You know, we can be more than we are as humans through the car. And, and that's certainly true. I mean, there's the whole semiotics of the car that uh, people in traffic don't see you, they see the car. So through the car, you're communicating who you are. And there's different ways of using that to your advantage. Um, people respect you, perhaps if you drive a very large and powerful car, um, there is uh, probably ways of partner finding. I mean, we talked a bit about sexual, the car is sexual space and there are studies showing that if you have a red sports car, women will know this is about a one night stand. So um, there's different ways of um, communicating through the car, becoming more through the car that, that we need to consider here. Um, oh, oh, absolutely. We should just quickly say before we run out of time that I, I referenced the, this um, paper that you wrote um, in which you calculated the lifetime cost of driving a car in Germany, where, by the way, people drive less than we would drive here in America. Um, but there's also the part about the, the cost borne by you as opposed to the cost borne by society, which is going to segue into our, our final conversation today. But do you want to say uh, maybe a little bit about what you found there? Yeah, well, we, we calculate the private and the social cost um, of driving a car through uh, 50 years. <clears throat> yeah, the reason being that um, over here we are having debates as to whether car use should be restricted, for instance, in cities, because there's competition with other transport modes. Uh, it's about space, it's about pollution. And uh, the question being then um, if society is actually um, subsidizing car use um, quite uh, to quite a degree and we were actually able to show that yes um, about 40% of the total car cost is borne by society because most people think when they pay taxes for buying fuel or gas or you know paying taxes for for car use that covers the the, the social cost of, of uh, what the car is um, causing in, in negative extern externalities, but that's not the case. The car is very expensive to both the person who owns it, but also to society. All right, we're going to have to uh, stop there. I do want to say one thing that we've kind of found out here during the middle of the show is that uh, Connecticut is a state privacy law that gives consumers the right uh, to, to fi find out more about the privacy laws and privacy provisions associated with purchases that they make. So that if, if you're listening to this and you're worried about all the stuff we talked about in the first segment and you live in Connecticut, you may have rights worth exploring. We'll try to put something up on the website uh, connected to this show. But we also want to thank Stefan Gosling, a professor at Linnaeus University in Sweden. We'll take a break and we'll return after this. Make sure you never miss the Colin McEnroe Show by subscribing to or following our podcast on any app. It is free. The senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, whose boss is Katie Tolarski, whose boss is Mark Contreras, who reports to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. We don't know why.
Back to the show. All right. And thanks to Kat Pastor. That was the voice you just heard there. She's our technical producer. McCusker the Wonder Kid uh, is the producer of this particular episode. Uh, we're going to finish up with a conversation about another idea I'm sure you are unfamiliar with, although you may recognize many of its elements. Here to have that conversation is Ian Walker, professor of environmental psychology at Swansea University in Wales. So, Ian Walker, I've been saying straight along that as we reveal here on the air the ways in which your car may be violating your privacy, people People are likely to be freaked out, shocked, upset, outraged. But according to your thinking, maybe they won't be quite so much because we kind of cut a special deal for cars. And you call this, um, uh, you, you have a, a kind of a special name for this, motor normativity. Tell us about m- motor normativity. Oh, I wondered if you were going to take a run up at that then, and you did. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is some work we did. I did this with colleagues uh, in the UK, Alan Tapp and Adrian Davis. And really, it was a you know, is a piece of research where the goal wasn't to find out something new or necessarily to do, you know, hard pushing back the boundaries of science. It was really to try and ask that question, look, is this thing that we think we see real? And we were interested in the idea that maybe because all of us have only ever known a world where cars come first and everybody alive today has only ever known that world where cars come first, we said, is this affecting us? Is this changing the way people think? And so we did a big survey uh, where we asked people around the country a load of questions. uh, And secretly, we did two versions of the questions. So people either got a series of questions where we asked them about driving, or we asked exactly the same questions, but we just changed one or two words so that the question was asking the same thing, but about something that was not driving. And in most cases, people's answers completely changed. You ask them a question about uh, the harms of driving, you know, the, the danger it causes or the pollution. And people say, well, yeah, you know, that, that's fine. What can you do about it? <laughs> and you ask exactly the same question about the harms coming from some other source and people immediately see the problem. And so we, we coined this term motor normativity to try to capture the idea that uh, just as a culture, Collectively, uh, we just share this blind spot about the problems that motoring causes. Yeah, just Actually, to... it's, a, it's a good. Sorry, I was just going to say it's a good week to see it because what have we just seen this week? We've just seen a load of uh, aircraft grounded in the last few hours mm. um, because they may harm somebody, uh, and yet every day in America, over 100 people die on the roads and nothing gets grounded at all which is quite a nice illustration of the kind of thinking and the special case that we make for just this one example. Right. So just to give people an example, people shouldn't smoke in highly populated areas where other people have to breathe in the cigarette fumes. Roughly 75 percent agree with that. Uh, But if you substitute driving, people shouldn't drive in highly populated areas where other people have to breathe in the car fumes. Only 17 percent agree. Uh, A similar thing is there's no point in uh, expecting people to drive less. So society just needs to accept any negative consequences that it causes. Um, as opposed to there's no point in expecting people to drink alcohol less. So society just needs to accept any negative uh, consequences. Uh, It causes far, far more people were willing to kind of come down hard on the alcohol as opposed to the driving. And and one of the terms that you use for this, and you almost used it a few seconds ago, is special pleading. Explain what that Mm. means. Yeah, so special pleading. People have probably heard of these sort of 
common cognitive fallacies, these sort of mistakes of thinking that we're all susceptible to. And special pleading is one of them. So special pleading is where when people are discussing or making arguments, they just make a special exception for one specific case, but don't justify it. It's just a like a slip of the mind that they'll talk about certain examples and not realize that they're giving it a free ride and not holding it to the same standards. And in a way, that's one of the things that really interested us as the the outcome of this motor normativity phenomenon, that people in this one quite specific context, they're not using the same moral and ethical standards that they would in any other part of their lives. And in and in a way, people are acting in a way that is very much against the values that they would probably hold in any other part of their lives. I doubt uh, any of the people who get quite aggressive on the road uh, would uh, do the same if they were waiting in line in a supermarket and just demand that the person in front of them gets out of the way. <laughs> so I, I may have misunderstood this, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed as though even when you corrected for just to look at people who really don't identify as drivers, people who are more likely to be pedestrians or cyclists, it seemed as though they still shared in that particular cognitive bias in favor of cars. Yeah, and it's great that you've picked up on that because that was one of the really important things. So a fairly substantial proportion of the people we interviewed uh, don't drive because this is the great unspoken, unconsidered minority in the UK. About 25% of our homes don't have a car. Uh, not that you'd know it from government policy. Um <laughs> And what was interesting, you'd expect, you know, you'd completely understand it if somebody who drives everywhere downplays the harms of driving. But the interesting thing that you've picked up on there is that the people who don't drive did the same thing. And that's why we said, well, look, this isn't just about individuals excusing their own behavior. It's not just making a special case to justify your own actions. This is something deeper. This is more a shared cultural blind spot that people pick up as they grow up within our culture. And and that results in an interesting feedback loop between the built environment and how people feel about what they're doing at any given time. If I mean, I, I think America is probably the worst, at least in the, in the West, uh, about this. But we often build environments here that seem like they're designed to make cars happy uh, as opposed to human beings. Uh, and yes, where it's inconvenient to walk, almost really dangerous and frightening to walk in some environments and relatively easy to drive. And so that sort of keeps this conversation going, even to the person who's walking or cycling, that they're really, they really are effectively second-class citizens. They're being mm. told that by the built environment. But I'd love you to share your thoughts on that. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things we really discussed in that paper, which people can find online if they want to search for that term, motor normativity, they'll find the paper. It's all freely available. Um, one of the things we really discussed was how the the environment around us is set up to maintain this. And when we say environment, we actually mean lots of different aspects of the environment, all of which reinforce each other. So if you just go out in the street, what do you see? Well, you see other people. You see other people's actions, all of which are telling you uh, this kind of behavior is normal. Driving too fast, breaking the law is normal. Um, doing antisocial things is normal in this one very specific context. And then, as you say, that social environment that surrounds us and reinforcing our behaviours and telling us what's normal um, 
is within a physical built environment, which again sends messages to us, telling us what's normal and what's important. If you're on foot, the built environment makes it very clear that you are less important than a person in a car. Uh, and then all of those things, the social environment, the built environment, all of those exist within a cultural environment. The, the things in our media, the way news stories, the way news reporting systematically uh, makes uh, violence on the road feel as if it's just something that happens as an act of God and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, you know, uh, cyclist in collision with car, as if the cyclist... Um, smashed their bike into the car and no driver was involved. So all of those environments, the built environment, the social environment, the cultural environment, they're all pushing in the same direction, which is, hey, buy a car, use the car. I am shocked to hear the journalists have anything to do with this problem, Ian. I just, uh, <laughs> it had never occurred to me that we were anything but blameless. I, as we kind of run out of time here pretty soon, it does feel as though the conversation that we're both having here feels a little bit like eat your vegetables, right? Um, I mean, you, as, as opposed to have, have dessert and have fun, people th associate, particularly in America, uh, cars with fun and recreation. And if we're going to say to city planners and traffic engineers, you should prioritize safety over speed, uh, you should uh, you should make it a, a safer environment uh, for people who are walking and, and on bicycles and even people who are riding in cars. It's kind of goes against the grain, right? We've been taught cars are fun. And the other thing that we've been taught in terms of kind of uh, transportation planning and just city planning, anything like that is your goal is to get people from in cars from one side of Boston or London or wherever <laughs> to the other side, uh, not w without a whole lot of regard for some of these other things that that you're suggesting we think about. Uh, see what your your response to that is. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things came to mind as you said that. I mean, one is um, the the cars is fun thing is really interesting. I think it's a really good example of the sort of blind spot we were talking about. That maybe cars are fun occasionally, but a lot of the time, cars are paying bills or looking for drug parking spaces or being stuck in traffic queues. Um, that's what driving is a lot of the time. But people don't notice those bits because we have a blind spot for them. You know, something I see all the time is people will go, oh, I, I tried going by train and it was delayed for an hour. I'm never going to do it again. It's the worst thing that's ever happened. And those same people routinely sit in queues of traffic for an hour and don't even notice it. So the blind spot operates itself there. Um, the thing you said about the uh, the traffic planners and this, um, you know, they're trying to get cars from one side of the, other, of the city to the other as quickly as possible. It's, it's so right. And it's a really good example of, and, and you can see this in other areas of life, where people try to solve a problem and they jump halfway down to the solution uh, without quite asking what they're trying mm -hmm. to do. Um, you actually see something similar to this in uh, the legal system, a bit like, how can we reduce crime? And the question immediately becomes, how can we put more people in prison? Exactly. Ian Walker, uh, I, yeah. hate to, I hate to interrupt, but we're actually Sorry. out of time here. This is fascinating oh. stuff. Ian Walker is professor of environmental psychology at Swansea University in Wales. Thank you for your time. The rest of you, thank you for listening. Thanks to McCusker, the Wonder Kid, for producing.
the more you drive, the less intelligent you are. 